title for the, the message is What Real Love Looks Like. Um, so let's read the text first and then consider this together this morning. Paul says at the end of chapter 1, in verse 23, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you, you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone else, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Well, this is the word of God. Pray he adds his blessing to it. Let's talk today about what real love looks like. And that title comes from the text itself, actually. There, if you're looking at it again, uh, in, in verse 4, Paul says he writes this letter, and he talks about some of the emotions that come with it, to let you know the depth of my love for you. So the motivation for the letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthians is, is love. He's like, I want you to know the depth of my love. And it comes in the form of this letter that I've written to you. And that letter has a lot of content. And it's got a backstory. You know, he spent 18 months with these people uh, in Corinth teaching them. And then moved on. And then when he left this young church, uh, they were in a culture that had some different standards and values that he was presenting to them in Christ so they struggle and he writes back and forth giving them information and some people come in here and start doubting whether you can really trust Paul. So part of what he's doing in this letter is giving a defense of why they can continue listening to him but also expressing maybe more than in any other letter uh, what he's struggling with internally. Kind of what's going on underneath the surface. He's very honest. He's very straightforward in this letter as well. And as we saw last week, the last two weeks, he begins by talking about comfort that you can receive from God. That's where he starts. He's experienced the comfort of God, and he wants them to know it as well. And then he talks about God's faithfulness. We sang about that today, that God is faithful to all of his promises. They're all yes in Christ. So that's where we were the last two weeks. Now, as he begins and continues to talk about the things that he is trying to address, he says, this is a picture of what real love looks like. It's not the total picture. It's not exhaustive. But we know, he says, my motive for doing this love. So if this is something that has been endorsed by God, his 
his approach here gives us a glimpse of kind of what real love looks like. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of ideas about what does love really look like in our culture for this day, too. It certainly was true back then as well. So this is a picture of what biblical love looks like, the motive that he has there. And that's kind of the, the, the way that we're going to look at the, this morning at this text. And so what can we say, at least uh, when we look at the book of Second Corinthians and his letter here, what does real love look like? Well, the first thing that we can say is that real love cares. And I have that italicized and in bold there too, to point real love cares. If, if you look at that, and some of these are other kind of bolded here, I don't know how well it comes across on the screen, but Paul talks about a painful visit. He had a hard time there too. And he, he, it was painful to him because he actually cared about them. How often does he, listen to these words, grieve, in verse 2, if I grieve you, um, who's left to, to make, he may, make me glad, whom I have grieved, in verse 2 as well. Um, and then in verse 3, I'm distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I want to share in the joy, in verse 3. And then in verse 4, out of great distress and anguish of heart and many tears, I don't want to grieve you, but show you the depth of my love. And then in verse 5, Anyone's caused grief, grieve, grieved me, grieved all of you. So real love, at least Paul says, you know I care for you because your behavior is actually affecting me. He uses words that are pretty strong here and actually express emotion. Now, Paul is a man's man. If any of you were here and you heard about the list of things he went through, this guy was a total stud. I mean, he was stoned multiple times, left for dead. They thought they were. He's been shipwrecked multiple times as well. He's gone uh, out in the wilderness, he said, naked, without clothes. He's been, you know, left, abandoned. This guy's been through it all. There's an incredible list of things that he suffered as well. So if anybody's going to doubt whether or not Paul is tough, all you have to do is look at his life. And yet here he is using highly emotive words. He feels things deeply. He is grieved. He's stressed. The dude even cries. Many tears. Now we have, in any culture, uh, this is just what happens. We have a definition of what things look like. What does it mean to be a man, for example? And oftentimes we start believing that narrative, if you want to call it that, that our culture says, and the challenge is to measure it against a biblical perspective on things, and that's very hard to do, but it's kind of difficult to come away from a text like this and get the message that to be a man of God means I can't show emotions or express hurt or pain. That is not a biblical perspective. I know it's a one because I'm, you know, I'm an American and I'm a dude, and I know what it's like to have that mentality, avoid at all costs, not only the recognition of perhaps, because it's perceived as weakness. One of the amazing things about Paul understanding grace is at the very end of this, he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's not about me and how tough I am. It's about Christ and who he is. That is a basic premise of what we call the Christian life. So why is it that we've redefined what it looks like? 
What measure are we using to say, what does it mean to be a man or a follower of Christ more generally? Well, clearly, Paul didn't have a problem expressing these things. And in our language, there's another, there's that kind of, ooh, what does it mean to be a man? And then there's this other thing of IQ, EQ, which is a little more popular. It seems like it's more popular in the secular world. Sometimes the church throws everything out because, ooh, we talk about that in corporate culture. But the reason that happens is because there's a lot of really intelligent people who have no clue what's going on underneath and can't express it. And because that's the case, then, a lot of people say, okay, fine, you've got some mental capacities, but do you have any awareness of who you are as a human being? You're actually less of a person if you're out of touch with your emotions. Some people have recognized that out there. And there's a little bit happening in the church in that area as well. Some of you have heard me reference Peter Scazzaro before, so you'll be familiar with this. But he planted a church in Queens, the most diverse zip code in the United States of America. As a Roman, Italian man, uh, back, Catholic background, and he grew up with the whole machismo kind of perspective, and he brought that into running or organizing a church. He was a very strong leader. And as some of you know, one day his, um, his wife came to him and said, I'm leaving the church because I don't like the pastor anymore. And he's, you know, what? What are you talking about? And she said, you've got some real work to do. You're a piece of work. <laughs> Basically, I'm not attending your church anymore. So they went to, off to a, you know, a marriage retreat, and he couldn't wait to you know, discover what was wrong with her. And obviously, at the end of the day, he realized he had some unfinished business in his own life. He was using all this you know, success as a way to dodge what was happening underneath things, too. And for the first time, he was exposed, and it was really difficult for him. So he wrote a book that talks about just discipleship as a whole, how we take slices of it, too. And one of them, the emotional health component, is something that, by and large, in our cultural context, even in the church, we've said is irrelevant. And we've done it to our detriment. That's why you have a bunch of leaders in churches who are completely out of touch with who they actually are. Get a successful businessman because there's business or woman or whoever may be around the table, but they don't really understand what's happening underneath. That's true toxicity that can happen as well. And I'm only saying that because I see it out there too. But if we lean into what is saying here, what does real love look like? Real love cares. There's pain. There's tears. There's grieving. And he's talking about it. He's writing a letter. He's wrestling with what's happening internally. And, you know, I said this last week, too, at the memorial service. Easiest verse in the Bible. You guys all know it. John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He, he, he felt the pain and the sting of disappointment and sorrow and loss. And he didn't just hold it in. He expressed it. And Paul's saying, I've got to do the same thing with this group of people. I love you too much just to kind of hide behind all this stuff. I mean, the words that he uses there are pretty, pretty powerful words. Real love cares. And I think in the church we'd stand, uh, we have an opportunity maybe to discuss this, but to equip ourselves with what that really looks like as well. And to be honest uh, about it. And there's, there's some good work being done in this arena that I think is nice. And 
Uh, and yet, what I'm trying to say is the picture of being fully human, if Christ himself exemplifies that of all else, means we recognize our emotions. Really, the only question is what are you going to do with them? How are you going to learn to express them? In a way, in a context, in community, that gives us some insight and some wisdom. And if we don't do that, it's to our detriment. So that's, that's one thing about love. Now, just Paul in verse, in verse 6, and to go on, talks about punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So real love cares enough to confront if necessary. Now, a little, again, reminder of 1 Corinthians. There were some issues happening in 1 Corinthians that were... Um, uh, sexual immorality was, was rampant to a point that even people outside the church would raise their eyes. Like, whoa, that's going on in there? What's happening? And so Paul says, that's not good. You have to care about what's happening, how this person's behavior is affecting the whole, how one piece is affecting the whole. And there are times when, if you're aligning with Christ, people have to confront each other in love if necessary. And so there was actually something that happens here that the majority instituted, and he says, enough. You've done enough. But behind that is the fact that something actually was done. When you become, for example, a, a, not every church has membership, but we do at Redeemer, in part because what we're saying to each other is we're giving each other permission to speak into each other's lives. And so as a group of leaders, we have elders, if we see that something's happening, part of what we're going to do eventually is come and say to a brother or sister, it needs to stop because it's not healthy or good for you or for the sake of the church generally. That becomes very messy. So in 1 Corinthians, if you remember the title, it was the beautiful, messy bride of Christ. <laughs> beautiful, because sinners have been saved by grace. Messy, sinners have been saved by grace. So enter the world of what some people have called church discipline, which some churches just don't even practice. And it's difficult because if you're serious to doing that as well and you begin those steps, then somebody can just leave. But the reason it happens, and all of you parents know this, anytime you want to issue discipline, it's for that person's good. It, it, that's, that's the intent. But anybody receiving the discipline typically doesn't take it that way. Uh, always, but we're saying we're going to enter into this together. I care too much about you to leave you this way. That's the idea behind it. And so there was some punishment inflicted. There was some confrontation. And we don't know the specific issue he has in mind, but we know some of the things happening in Corinthians. And since we talked just about church discipline, let me just give you a quick primer on that as well, too. Historically speaking, Church discipline happens when you come and listen to God's word. That's the first line of defense. This is one of the reasons why we say, let's gather together, let's hear God's word preached, because he's saying this is what it looks like to live life well, and if we're being faithful to the scriptures, that's coming to bear in your life, and the spirit is at work convicting where conviction is necessary. He's the only one ultimately who's going to do real change. We can bring something to bear, right? It's the carrot and the stick type experience. You must change. And eventually you might. 
But what God's really looking for is a heart that's soft to the things of God and willing to receive that. That's a work of the Spirit. And part of that, we think, happens when you come and you listen to God's Word and you gather instruction and you're with His people. So that's the first line of defense, as it were, for discipline. But most churches use Matthew 18 as the next kind of guidelines for this, too. If you're in conflict with somebody and there's something that needs to be brought up, Jesus has a very simple pathway to doing this. And boy, I'll tell you, so much would not ever go out, spin out of control if you would just do this. The very first thing is go to the offender. If you find something happening inside of your heart and you can't get rid of it, go talk to that person. I think especially in our culture, texting, emails, they're never good first, first lines of trying to do this, to pick up a phone, yeah, you all have them. They're in your hands right now. And so does that other person. I really think the, let's try this out. Call and say whatever you need to say. Let's get together and talk face to face. That may not solve everything, but it's, a, it's, the, best, it's the best starting point. Um, I know they didn't have cell phones back then or even telephones. So obviously they weren't sending carrier pigeons to each other. They actually had to talk face to face. And then if, there's, if that doesn't go well for whatever reason, you know, bring somebody else, somebody who's trusted into the conversation. He says, go bring someone else alongside you because it's not, you know, maybe there's some strong emotions and people say things they didn't mean and now they need some more help or somebody's just resistant to it and you need to, to validate that this is something you're really concerned about. And then Jesus goes on to say, then tell it to the whole church if they're still unwilling to change. Um, how we take that would be, that, as we call it, the session, the elders. You've elected leaders in this church. So we're not going to come up here and say, all right, everybody, we got some great stuff for you today. <laughs> all right? So we're going to have a time of confession. I'm confessing your sins <laughs> one at a time to the entire church. So the picture is leaders of the church getting together and listening and, con uh, and offering uh, more than just advice and something like stern warnings, exhortations that this needs to change. Um, in, in our church polity, or the way we structure it, when we have communion, that's a signal that we are in right relationship with each other through Christ. And if you're not willing to, to do this, if it's a grievous error too, we say just refrain yourself from taking, from taking communion. At that point, most of the time, somebody's going to say, why would I take communion with you anyway? And I also don't know what that looks like if that person comes up. Am I supposed to tackle the individual? I think it's more like, oh, no, you can't take it. Yeah, run. No. But, it's, but we're saying you need, to, you need to get right with God first. This table isn't available to you because it's signaling a unity that doesn't exist. And ultimately, too, it's the worst of worst things is excommunication, saying you're no longer a member of this church. It sounds so harsh and so difficult. But Paul wants us to see that real love cares enough to confront because purity matters. Um, he talks about this a lot in, in 1 Corinthians. Just to remind you of a couple of things, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? And then he, he, he talks to them, this is a longer passage about how to deal with some of this. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, 
so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. It's pretty harsh language, but he says the reason that we're doing this is to say this person's in grave danger and it's an eternal issue. So hand him over, not so that he can be separated from us, but so that he can be saved, so he can re-enter, so he can see, or she, that they're in grave danger unless they repent, unless they come back. And that's how we enter the kingdom initially, right? Repent and believe the good news. So that's how I take it to say even treating them like an unbeliever. Now, they're, they're somebody who's on your list of people you're praying for to come to faith in Christ. So it sounds, now that sounds nice, but it's terribly messy. And Paul knows that. He experienced it. We don't want to get here. So if you back it up, whoever wants to get to that point, you back it all up, start with coming to hear God's word and being faithful and intent not on just listening but doing as well. And then let's do this thing one-on-one too. And Paul, part of why he wanted to visit them is so that there wouldn't be this miscommunication and people wouldn't come in and start believing things that maybe aren't really true. Let's just have a conversation and make sure we're really getting down to what's going on. If we do that, then we're going to prevent ourselves from getting sometimes farther down the list. So real love cares to confront. But the idea underneath it is that real love cares about purity. You hear about the purity of the church. And this is a lot of language from the First Corinthians book as well, too, that we do want to present ourselves as holy. I was thinking last week about Ephesians 5, and, you know, we made reference to that, too, uh, and the beautiful image of a husband loving a wife and presenting her as holy and blameless. That's the picture. Christ laid down his life for the church so he could present them holy and blameless, and now a husband is to do that to a wife as well. So our target is for the good not only of ourselves, but the community in concentric circles. And that's part of what Paul's talking about. So real love doesn't just look like endorsing absolutely every activity. That's not really love. And some of us maybe, depending on our relationships, probably understand that a little bit more than others. Tend tend to get that as you grow up a little bit more. (laughs) Like, aha, that's why. And... Paul says you need to understand that as well. Now, let's get to the final point here too. Real love certainly cares, and real love cares enough to confront if necessary, but Paul's not finished there because where he's really driving at the end of the day is that real love cares about restoration. You ought to forgive and comfort him so he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Here's a picture of somebody who's done something that they know has caused grief, and they feel bad about it. And there is there's some discipline that's gone on, but the people who are now just want them to suffer a little longer. Have you ever had that experience before? If somebody's done something that's wronged you, and uh, you just like seeing them suffer for that a little bit longer, like a little bit more, 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 and you just are yielding it now as a weapon. And one of the things that Paul says here is real love cares about restoration. It sounds to me like you want retribution. It sounds to me like you want people to suffer and know the pain you've had instead of the forgiveness that you're supposed to be giving. Isn't that what you long for as well? And, and what's, what's really interesting to me here in this passage too is Paul gives us a little glimpse that that kind of attitude is fighting the wrong enemy. Because what does he say here? 
If you forgive them, I forgive them. And by the way, Paul's the one who's been offended. And they have some alignment with him. And they're like, oh, that person has to suffer. And Paul said, look, I'm forgiving them. Why aren't you? Because one of the mistakes you're going to make is you're fighting against the wrong enemy. Who is the real enemy here? I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For not, we're not unaware of his schemes. So the, the Bible presents a picture of Satan, a real entity, who's at work, whose main job description is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's the father of lies, and he prowls around looking for an opportunity to devour you. Now, that's not to make you scared to leave. It's just to recognize that there's a real enemy. And one of the ways he outwits you is when you refuse to forgive somebody else for a wrong that they've committed against you. There's a root of bitterness in your heart. And that person, and this is, this is the scenario, that person has come with repentance. It's, it's hard when somebody doesn't come and they're kind of like, they're not saying, I'm not sorry, you know. That's, that's, a, that's hard, right? But this is somebody who said, I feel sorrow. And you're like, not enough. It needs to look more like this. I've got a good prescription for you. And, and Paul is saying, you can't do that. You, this person has beaten themselves up so much. You want, now you have to forgive. Because your goal is not punishment, it's restoration. And here it's happening, and you're unwilling to do it. So not only are you looking more like falling into the hands of Satan, but your heart itself has now become the problem that you need to fight against. You're filled with unforgiveness. And he says, don't let a root of bitterness take hold in your heart. If, you, if you're prepared for battle and you really want to love somebody, then, then watch for those moments when forgiveness needs to be extended, but you're unwilling to do it because now you're playing into the hands of your greatest enemy, Satan himself. And the evidence of forgiveness here is comfort. That gets us back to chapter one. How are you able to provide comfort? to that person. Some of them are just in the words, I forgive you. I mean, that's, those are pretty powerful words. And I know sometimes you feel like your heart isn't quite there. I've, I've shared this example before of a, a gal whose father had sexually abused her. And I, she was a brand new believer. And I said, can you forgive him? No. Can you pray that you will want to forgive him one day? No. Can you pray that one day you will pray that you will forgive him? No, and went one step further. It's like, yeah, I can pray that one day I might pray that I'll pray that I can forgive him. It's a starting point. <laughs> and eventually, eventually you, you get there. Um, but the real enemy here, too, is the author of all this evil that's happened. And it's Satan himself. And Paul knows that. And, and what's fascinating is he says, if I can even do this, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. He cannot do this in his own strength. He realizes he received such profound forgiveness in Christ. At the end of his life, he said, I was the worst of sinners, but Christ forgave me. As an example of unlimited patience. So you too can forgive others. So at the end of the day, that lack of forgiveness has a lot to do, not only with falling into the, you know, this is, if this were a survivor type thing. Satan is the greatest player. Outwit, outlast, outplay. Be aware of his schemes. And if you find in your heart a root of bitterness, don't play into his hands. And how do you solve that problem? Well, you begin, like Paul says, to realize, I need more grace because I can't do it in my own strength. 
That's why he said, you really want to know what a man looks like? Somebody who leans on the grace of God more heavily than anyone else. When I'm weak, that's when I finally know I'm strong. Satan can't do anything with that. That's his greatest fear. That you'll recognize your utter dependence on Christ, even to forgive small offenses. And so when the world says otherwise, don't believe that. That's a lie. And we're brought again and again and again to what real love, what does real love look like? Look at the cross. Christ, who had every reason not to forgive you, <laughs> said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they were doing. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That's what real love looks like. Is, so when we, when we walk in Christ's ways, he says, he's writing this letter, you want to know what real love looks like? You're, you're going to be drawn back again and again into the cross. And if you're trying to do that in your own strength, that's why he gives us his spirit as a deposit. You can't do it. Otherwise, it just becomes moralism and legalistic. And we're all, when you talk about purity, it's, you start thinking like, oh, let's just follow a bunch of laws and cast out the person who doesn't follow them. That's legalism. That's not what real love looks like because Christ dismantled that on the cross. And actually, he says, if you love me, you obey my commands. The motive for that is love. Because he's in the business of restoration. I know John 8 is a disputed text in early manuscripts, but it so fits Jesus' character and even what happens next in John 9 when a woman is brought you know, before all these people and they're going to throw stones at her because by the law, what she deserves is to be stoned to death. And, the, and Jesus starts you know, bending down and writing things in the sand. And one by one, they leave. Nobody knows what he was writing. Um, why would they leave one by one? My own, my own theory is that he was kind of writing John, you know, and starting to write his sins down there. And he's like, oh, dope, I'm out of here. <laughs> God, well, and he looks up and he says, where are your accusers? There are none. And he says, now go and leave your life of sin. The ultimate extension of forgiveness and grace that tells her now, go live a life of purity, but also a life of peace. And Paul, when he talks about the church, that's his picture of it. So when you read a passage like this, you might come with a jaded heart and say, see, I knew the church is a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. And the answer is like, yeah, not dismissively, but to our pain and our shame. It's true. And we're not going to hide that. We're going to be honest about it and say, we don't want to be like that, but for the grace of God. And that's a very disarming approach than to saying, for, for your sake and for the sake of the bride of Christ, we're going to, this is what real love looks like. It's hard, it's painful. And its intent is never to destroy, but rather to, dis, to restore. And if you've been a victim of that to your destruction, then the church has looked a lot more like Satan than Christ. And if you've rejected that too, uh, be, for somebody who loves you too, then maybe there's some business in your own heart that needs to be done, some reconciliation. You're not designed to live with that kind of bitterness and hurt. Be honest about it. And ultimately, all sin, sin against God. David knew that as well. He said, against you and you only I have sinned. Do you think that your, you know, the guy who was killed felt like, you need to sin against God? I'm dead, dude. And the person who committed adultery with sinned against... Because all sin ultimately is against a, a, a person made in God's image. 
And it's God's standard that you've broken. So none of us is without guilt today. That's the good news. We're all a bunch of miserable sinners. <laughs> but the better news is Christ died for you. And because of that, our motivation for living out what love really looks like is the love that we've received in God through Christ alone and secured by him and his sacrifice. So I, I, that's part of what Paul's doing. There's a lot. You, could, you, know, you deal with a text like this. There's so many things to draw out. But what struck me was that his motive here is love. And he says, here's what love can look like. And ultimately, it points us to Christ. He's the only one who's the purest expression of it. Father, I pray for our own hearts today, especially if we find ourselves mired in a cesspool of anger, in hostility, in bitterness. It could even be a right anger. And we don't want to stay there. May it move us toward restoration. Sometimes we don't know, really know what that looks like, but we get a picture of it quite clearly in the cross that Christ, who did not deserve any of the treatment he got, took it on willingly so that he'd be punished for the things that we did and then said, go and live a life kind of like this. This is what it means to be my follower. And because of that, we do care. Love cares. And because it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. There'll be pain, and there'll be grieving, and there'll be sorrow, and there'll be mourning, and there'll be joy. This is part of what it means to be part of the beautiful, messy bride of Christ. And even as we long for that day of total resolution where the bitterness maybe we struggle with, it, we're completely set free from it, we know because your spirit has given to us that day will come. In the meantime, we don't want to be kept from growing and from loving and from giving ourselves away. So whatever barriers we've put in our heart, Jesus, would you come knock those down? Would you send your Holy Spirit? The Christ, we are told, came to, to break down those dividing walls. So if they are there, Holy Spirit, do your work. Bring the wrecking ball. All the barriers and walls we put up, may they be brought down. And that's a scary place to be. But we're not alone. Any one of us who said yes to Christ have been there. And perhaps we're there today as well. So we thank you. We not only have your Holy Spirit, but we also have your body who comes alongside us. And at some point, it could be the body itself that's done the injury. Forgive us, Father. And we pray that we would be equipped for more grace for the journey. That any confrontation we do is in love. And it's done in the way that you have given us to do it. And it's with the great backdrop of the shadow of the cross that bids us to come and to die again. We sang about that. We sang about that, and we've heard it hopefully clearly preached in the word as well. And so remind us again today of what real love looks like. We'll have opportunities to express that in the hours and days ahead. And so help us again to remember our Savior and our Lord Christ, the purest expression of love there is. May the deep, deep love of Christ envelop us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.